0: Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and OrthoEvidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bhandari from OrthoEvidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Uh, we are we're we're back in a morning meeting after a couple of uh, evening uh, uh-huh. sessions, as we you had been on the road i've been on the road yep. Now we're yep. back and so i've already had cup number one in the ortho joe mug you've got yours george I got one this is going to be your very special uh reward for uh allowing us to interview <laughs> for, for the ortho joe it, it is uh it's priceless is is what it is uh this, I, this mug
1: i can't wait i will look forward to it i will <laughs> i will sip with pride <laughs>
0: So this morning, uh, Mo and I have a special guest to interview, Dr. George Dyer uh, from the Brigham and Women's, uh, I would say a world uh, famous uh, hand and upper extremity surgeon who also served as the residency director there for a decade. Do I have that right, George? That's right. That was 10 years. At at the Harvard combined uh, residency. And George uh, has been the Deputy editor for the AOA educational channel uh, on JBJS Open Access. And it's something that we started, uh, uh, I guess, nearly two years ago, a channel in Open Access to get all of the educational research content in one spot, uh, free to the world, uh, accessible to anybody around the world, uh, as we try to improve the way that we uh, educate our residents to care for people. And I would also say that George has a Career-long interest in developing world orthopedic surgery. I've I've been to Haiti with George uh, several times, and George has traveled uh, traveled the world uh, trying to help improve uh, the skills of our colleagues uh, around the world. And George, uh, thanks so much for willing to be interviewed, and thanks for taking this job on. You you're you've done a Great job. Maybe I'll start out. I know Mo always has better questions than I, but uh, I'm going to go first. So, wh- why why did you ever become a residency director? And that's question one. And question two: What's
1: the biggest thing you learned in that role? So, I could give you the joke answer, you know, because people <laughs> like to be sort of all all shucks and and, <laughs> and humble, and also pretend to whine about the job of being a program director. Because it's of course it's not all roses. Um, oh, indeed, but, yeah, there's yeah, there's, plenty, there's plenty of thorns. Um, <laughs> but it was it was really a unique and wonderful opportunity, and I just felt really fortunate to to have gotten it at a at a fairly young stage in my career. Actually, um, I was only in my mid forties when I started to do that, and and at at Harvard anyway, the residency director has mostly been sort of a swan song job. So my my predecessors were just these towering figures: uh, Jim Herndon and Dempsey Springfield and Henry Mankin. And uh, those were my three direct, immediate predecessors. So it was it was really quite an honor to be to be asked to do that job. And I just tried to bring some some different energy to it—the um, energy not of a very senior person, but of somebody a little more junior. Um, mm-hmm. This is a time when residency education is very much in transition mm-hmm. and what is required of residents is has changed a lot over my relatively short career in 15 years, it's changed a great deal. Educational methods have changed, and I think it's just been a it's been a joy to be in the middle of all of that. And so when I had the chance, I jumped at it.
0: Right. And the second question, what what's the biggest the biggest thing you learned in the
1: in the role? Two things. One is really about the about the job and about education. The other is about myself, if I may. The um, what I learned about about residents is that there is a there is a sort of a cultural divide, probably um, as the 80-hour work week and kind of learning changes and millennials have have come through. Um, I think a lot has been made, really too much has been made about the differences between millennial learners and mm-hmm. and older residents. Um, and uh, the main thing I've learned is that, that, that orthopedic trainees are, are just as smart and eager and hardworking as they ever were, mm-hmm. you know? And so I, I say to the, to the older surgeons who kind of look down <laughs> their nose and say, Oh, when I was, you know, when I was yeah. in your shoes, we walked yeah. up hill both mm-hmm. ways. I, mm-hmm. I just think, um, you know, probably since probably since cavemen were looking around and saying, kids these days, you know, all they want to do is scribble on the walls. Like, why can't they go outside and get chased by tigers like we did? You know, I feel like that's just part of a human, human condition is that you think you had it harder than those who came, who are coming along behind you. So that's one thing I've learned. And I just, I, I just want to repeat that message really of a confidence in today's learners for Mm -hmm. their work ethic and their eagerness to be great. What I learned about myself is that um the job of of running a big complicated residency is just it's just harder than you'd think mm-hmm. um, not a it's not a big surprise but um the 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 number of 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 little problems and big problems that you face are are just more than you'd imagine but the little joys of it are more than you expect and so it's been it's been it was a nice run and happy to leave on a pretty high note after 10 years and move on to the next adventure.
2: So George, well, there's many things you've said that already like sort of resonate with me uh, tremendously on a personal note, but no, the thing that um, I have been particularly uh, also interested in and invested in is, you know, the concept of residency training 10, 15 years ago versus now there is definitely safeguards put in place for resident well-being, resident mental health. You know, certainly yeah. the last two years have certainly changed a lot for all of us and made us think on, on, on a big level. My younger self used to always tell, you know, our trainees and I'd have graduate students, and I'd always say, you know, you know, we have to go big or go home. We've got to, you know, used to use that strategy all the time. You know, you've got to think big, you've got to, you gotta put in the time, and nothing happens without the hard work. And, not just, and I remember one particular trainee coming to me and say, saying, and he said, you know, we we're pretty familiar with her. He says, you know, Mo, when you keep telling our residents to go big or go home, you grossly underestimate our desire to go home. And that's <laughs> it. And I said to myself, hmm, that's interesting. And then I realized it took me 10 years to figure out mm-hmm. I'm wrong. And they were right, quite mm-hmm. frankly, which is the argument wasn't that, oh, we're not interested in you know, uh, spending the time and hours. It's how we spend our time and how we spend our hours is very, very important. And so toiling away for hundreds of hours doesn't necessarily, you know, you know, the the classic example of someone who looks busy isn't actually productive. That I think has been the biggest revelation for me. And I wonder for you during residency training as a program director, That has been, it sounds like some of that has been the evolution of, I think, many programs around the world. And I think many trainees are actually, in some cases, probably better off and not just in terms of life balance, but in terms of their ability to innovate because they have time to do so.
1: I hope that's true. I I love that idea. Mm -hmm. I hope that's true. I fear, though, that part of what's gone wrong in residency training, at least at our place, and it may be different other places, is that. The residents are are very task saturated, but not but actually not very well occupied. They're like they, they're busy, but they're not challenged. And a lot of what yeah. they do is just sort of, you know, they're they're feeding databases and they're completing things in EMRs and they're they're calling to coordinate care for patients after yeah. routine discharges. And I you mean, know, all this is work that somebody has to do a lot of it is i'm not going to say it's unimportant but it's certainly new from when we all trained mm-hmm. you know discharging a patient when i was a resident took yeah. like a few minutes really yeah. you sort you just you picked up the phone and you quickly blurted a summary of the patient's course and you wrote on the paper chart discharged to home and they were out yeah. now that takes half a day <laughs> and the and those the that act of admitting a patient or discharging a patient is far more frequent you know when i was a resident a total hip, a routine total hip, was stayed in the hospital for five days. That was the that was the pathway. There was something they called the advanced pathway where they stayed for only three days. You know now that's now that's overnight or day surgery. And so mm-hmm. all of the takeoffs and landings, which is really what occupies a house officer's time, is a much greater percentage of what you do. And so although you know it, it, training in the pre-work hours era. I was in the hospital for days and days. Much of that time was, it wasn't that it was unoccupied, but I could read, I could do research projects, I could hang out with more senior residents and with faculty and just sort of talk and learn orthopedics in a kind of a casual way. Now, every minute that a resident is in the hospital is just sucked into a a task. And so, although I partly agree that Limiting those hours is essential, so you can just go do something else outside. It seems to me that I, there used to be a softer boundary between work and free thinking inside the hospital, actually. yeah yeah and 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 i i I learned a lot from from senior residents and my peers because we weren't all like facing a computer away from each other the whole time.
2: Yeah. if you had to re sorry, if you had to re-envision on that note, George. If you had to re-envision um, what residency training could look like, how would you, quote, I use the term fixed, but I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, it has to be fixed per se, but maybe re- re-envisioned?
1: Well, I wish we were a little clearer about what is, about what is the essential work of education and what is just work. The job of a resident has always existed a little uneasily between two worlds. It's both a job and it's also education. We know it's not purely education because for that you pay tuition right and you get paid a salary to be a resident so everybody comes to residency expecting to work but some of that work is definitely educational so assisting in surgery that's no one would say that's not educational for Mm -hmm. a surgeon but typing on a computer and instead of going to the or not so educational and so i i would like to see a clearer delineation between what's Really moving somebody's education forward and what's not, and I I fear that the resident is d- uncomplaining mostly, and I I know as a program director that sounds like <laughs> to other program directors will say my residents are not uncomplaining, <laughs> but in the scheme of things they are uncomplaining. You know they who else will take call on holidays and stay till the, the work is done and coming at three in the morning, like th- there's nobody else in the hospital who just does that, basically without complaining. And so it's very easy for that, that workforce to absorb more and more tasks. And I, and I think they've, they've been taken advantage of in some ways.
0: So George, at some at some training programs, there has been a, a shift of that work work to other members of the team who aren't physicians. And residents just simply text that individual and say, uh, Mr. Jones in 14 needs to be seen in the clinic in two days at that time the staple should be taken out and discharged on this medication and some other member of the team does that what yeah. what are the barriers do you think in your institution to offloading that that work work and giving greater time
1: for for the educational part i think there's two i'm going to answer that in two parts the first part is may surprise you which is i think some of that is actually important to do some of it is not just work, work, but but the big barrier is money. You know, the amount of the amount of hours, even in the restricted work hours rules that uh, residents labor under now, the number of hours they work and the value of their labor, if you pay them at the rate of a of a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner, is just prohibitive. Yeah, um, it just it just costs too much to 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 replace all of that work with with some other kind of professional labor. Um, On the flip side, it's, I'm not advocating that Mm -hmm. residents should do no work, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's not, it's not school. And not only is it important to do work because you're getting paid for a job, but at least at our place, and this is, I think, true nationally for sure, Mm -hmm. only about 20% of graduates of academic residencies stay in academics. 80% of my graduates go into private practices Mm -hmm. where they are like, there's no, there's not an army of nurse practitioners in your little hospital. You odds are you're rounding on your on your own patients. You're recognizing complications on post-op day one on your own. You're discharging them on your own. Now maybe it's a little less cumbersome than in an academic medical center, but those are skills you actually need to have. Yeah. And so it's not it's not that they have no educational value, but but I think the balance is off at the moment.
0: Yeah. George, if I could, I know I've already proven on this particular interview that Mo asked the better questions. But I, if I could have another one with, so you were interested in becoming the editor of the Education Channel uh, in collaboration with the AOA on TVDSOA. What? Why were you interested in? And in what are your what are your dreams and visions uh, uh, for this publication?
1: Oh, it's it's great. I mean, so what? Why? Um, and I'm not. This is not. I'm not just trying to butter you up mark but in part it was to work with you and the other people who i really respect at jbjs i wanted to i wanted to see what the inside of publishing at the highest academic level was like and it's been no disappointment it's been great i also love sitting like right in the middle of the stream of n- the newest ideas in education and i've gotten to know the the people who are writing and the people who are reviewing who are a priceless resource a lot better it's been a lot of fun just to feel like i'm really part of that community in a way that I was not when I was just another person occasionally lobbing a paper over the fence to see what would happen to it so it's it's been everything I wanted as a as an experience as an editor the. um, My dreams for it is, I, I really think that the the JBJS is is the authoritative journal of orthopedics. And the education channel should similarly be the authoritative channel for research in education in orthopedics and right now it, it isn't necessarily. there's just other there's the journal of surgical education there's academic medicine, there are other other journals that publish education pieces here and there, and so I really want to cement Our role as the place you go if you want to read about education in orthopedics you think first and always of of JBJS
2: great just on that note then uh, as a follow-up george is there a major innovation in education that you think everybody whether you're a program director a resident a senior faculty or someone just you know thinking about career orthopedics should know about
1: is there a single innovation that i want Well, just
2: something something from your perspective that when you think about you know sort of the body of work that's that you've already been talking about you know on the channel Are there things like like the types of things maybe that you think are important for people to know about so one one challenge we always have is. You know there's the core research and then there's education research which rightly so has its absolute critical value in the things we do most surgeons and most residents don't really really understand the advances that have been made through education the very same things that they do, you know, we understand that the nail we're using and the indication used for has had some prior research to get to where we are. We don't realize that the tools of educating have had the same rigor. And I wonder if there's the types of things that are typically found on the channel might be helpful for those who haven't visited it.
1: Well, I, I'm I'm not sure how close we are to yeah. this, but I think the places where this channel or this body of research can really make a difference is where you can where you can concretely tie how well somebody learns to how well they take care of a patient, and that's in the end, that's all that matters, right? Is how how well people are cared for, and it stands to reason that people who are educated better would become better surgeons and therefore have better outcomes. But it's it's really hard to trace that, and so every time I review a paper, that's kind of the, what I'm looking for: is how do I how do I show and how do we know that. Teaching better makes people do better clinically. Thanks.
0: What's your current view of of the future of, of simulation, uh, George? That uh, this is a really important part of the the work that's published. But where do you think we're headed with simulation?
1: Well, I think simulation is first of all it's not new, right? We've done we've simulated and practiced forever. Like the I'm sure the cavemen, you know, like pr- like. Pretended to throw spears at the woolly mammoths, right? Mm-hmm. Before they went outside and did it for real. So I'm sure. So simulation is not a new idea, um, and the idea that you would be um, you'd be explicit in replacing a human being at risk with some simulation, so that new the newest learners can practice is is obvious. W- what worries me a little bit about the simulation trend is that in with all the other pressures financial pressures and productivity pressures that are on more senior surgeons that they they it seems like some are hoping to outsource education Uh, to a machine and a simulator somewhere else elsewhere i don't want i don't want to have to do this and look it's awesome all i have to do is buy this machine and then i just don't have to i don't have to deal with these novices in my or space and i think that's a that's a cop out and a risk and so um and and you can tell that it's not going to work because of the number of simulators that have been bought and are now collecting a very expensive dust hmm. all around the hospitals why because what what trainees want is to be they they want to be loved right. they they want to they want to feel that 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 the faculty are invested in their future um not that they've been outsourced to a you know a mechanical babysitter to teach them instead of instead of us and so um. So my maybe that's not the answer you were expecting, but I think it's it's actually a mix. I think that figuring out how judiciously to substitute a machine for a person at risk is critical, but we can't ever give up our sacred responsibility to teach.
0: I think that's really a, a very valuable warning to the orthopedic community. Mo, you got the last question.
2: So. <laughs> Maybe this is a little bit of a tangent, but not so much. I think we started off with you talking about your your career and the pride you have in being a program director. Let's say there is someone out there listening. You know, for those listening who's contemplating, you know, that's something I want to do, but I'm not sure. What type of person, broadly, George becomes a program director? Who, who is this? Who 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 would you speak to if you're trying to convince someone? To become a program director um, and take on that noble position within a you know residency training program
1: i I don't know that there's a single kind of person i mean like one of the one of the great pleasures of my 10 years as program director was the fellowship of other ones in the council of orthopedic residency directors through through writing together and speaking together and all of that and and of course they run a wide spectrum of people you know personalities and types and so i don't know that there's a single type what i think they all share and this is going to sound obvious i hope is just a a, an overwhelming interest in educating younger people you know they're willing to sacrifice their time and their comfort and to to educate so the salty and cynical of my friends of of residency directors would say it's like a career killing move and it's a dead end job and I found that to be very much the opposite but it um, but it's it's certainly there are uh, there are there are other ways that you can choose to spend your time and your talents um, to it because it's it's not necessarily um, gonna gonna increase the size of your practice. It's not gonna get you big grants. They're not big grants for education. I hope it'll. It's increasingly a good place to publish academically and to, to make a name for yourself in that way. It's definitely not the, the short path, um, but for somebody who's passionately interested in education, there's nothing else you'd rather do.
2: I think that's the word, right? Mm. Follow your passion.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, George, uh, thanks so much for spending the time uh, with us this morning. And as a side comment, I want to thank you for putting on a necktie, uh, which is endangered in orthopedic uh, uh, education and presentation. And uh, my colleague Mo and I have had a recent Ortho Joe episode on this. And I appreciate the support for the yeah. the, the endangered
2: species. Is, uh, is it
1: all right if I let the audience in on my secret? Yes, please do. For All my right, sake,
2: so, for my sake, George, please tell the audience. Please right, tell the audience.
1: The secret here, I know, I, I know this is not usually like an undressing sort of a show. Oh, thank so you. Oh. I want to show you. All right, you ready?
2: Look at this. Now we're talking. Came out
1: of clinic, now we're shirt talking. Shirt. I literally came out of clinic threw a <laughs> okay. shirt and tie on on top of my scrubs, which is what I was wearing the clinic. George. Just to that, gussy it up for all of you. That um, is the single most... This, this is my real uniform. Of now. On
2: any sort of meat. that's single <laughs> <moment on> ortho, <laughs> the ortho, single most honest moment on ortho Jill. Single most honest moment. Yeah, I it. have it. to, agree. Agree. A, a, have a, to having, agree.
1: Having a, a guest undress on, on camera. <laughs> Love it. it, it I, I hope it never happens again.
0: We <laughs> greatly appreciate your candor. And for, and for this, you're going to be getting this priceless ortho <laughs> mug uh, in the mail shortly. So have a great day, uh, George, great day as you return to clinic in the OR. And thanks, Mo, as always. Oh, take great.
1: Bye bye. Take care. Thank you.